Hello again and welcome to another episode of Voices from SA. My name is Nicholas Claude. I hope you are keeping well wherever you are listening today. My guest this week is Puven Mudli. He's the Executive Director of Natural Justice, a Cape Town-based NGO that specializes, and I quote, in human rights and environmental law in Africa in pursuit of both social and environmental justice. Puven grew up in Mandini in northern KwaZulu-Natal in the shadow of a coal-powered paper mill. His lungs suffer from that experience today. We chatted about his early days as an environmental and anti-apartheid activist uh, and then into the work of natural justice today, uh, supporting indigenous communities in a number of African countries. He touched on some of the recent community-based campaigns that natural justice has supported. And we also had a broader discussion on the magnitude of the climate catastrophe we are facing as a species and the need for really drastic changes in the way we live if we are to indeed survive. Um, so please now enjoy my chat with Puven. Uh, Puven, thanks uh, for your time this afternoon. Uh, we were just um, considering when we met about a year ago, so I think briefly watching some football. Absolutely. With, with your cousin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good to with see you again. With your cousin Noreen. Um, <laughs> You've been traveling. When did you um, join Natural Justice? I think it was just around that. I don't think you'd even joined when I met you. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I started on the first of September. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, yeah. that's just I've just remembered yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So you were. I think you were just on your way. I was to I was, Cape Town. I was still when living I, in Joburg at yeah, the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, yeah. And so I'm glad I, I took the opportunity now. And thanks, thanks again for yeah. taking the time to see me. Thank you. Um, you were telling me now you've just been up in Mpumalanga, and I suppose that would be a nice way to start to give us a sense, I think, of the kind of work you're doing here at the organization. Um, so tell me a little bit about your last, uh, your la- and your last week. And, and as we were saying, I mean, Mpumalanga's air quality has now been recognized as the second most filthy or second highest sort of carbon filled in the world as a result of coal mines... Yeah, yeah, and, and, and just to make a quick link, so I, I grew up in a small town called Mandeni, which is in the north uh, part of, uh, or to the north of Durban, uh, next to a paper factory fueled by coal. And, uh, you know, the, our houses were based on apartheid planning right next to the factory, mm-hmm. uh, which meant every day we'd be breathing in this, the, the smoke. Um, semi-detached houses, and often you couldn't see your neighbor's house. Um, so, you know, a lot of the kids from that time have got major breathing problems, and including myself, wow. ba- based on living next to the factory. But just yesterday, I was driving back <coughs> and passing through Mpumalanga, and there were a few things that struck me. Even I was out of contact for a week, so I hadn't seen the Greenpeace report. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, okay. yeah. But just driving through back yesterday, it, it was just incredible uh, in a very horrific way uh a the landscape as in the vegetation no, no there's no vegetation huh? you know it's just like mo- mountains of mines yeah uh but then you know the thick uh smoke that's coming out and then coming back is this on the road to nelspruit what's yeah, it the n4 it. or whatever yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. then coming back and just reading um, this greenpeace report saying that 
it's the yeah, second most toxic place on the planet mm. in terms of sulfur dioxide. It's you know, not surprising, but still you know, obviously very shocking. So the fact that, and, and someone, it was actually Melissa Steele from Greenpeace who called it apocalypse. And mm. it kind of really struck me because you know, we, we kind of see uh, certain areas like in Pumalanga or where I grew up as like pockets, right? But the reality is, you know, with the amount of uh, carbon and sulfur we're throwing into the a atmosphere, you know, it, it's now becoming obviously a collective thing. Mm. Uh, but yeah, a, there are no boundaries in the air, are there? I mean, that yeah. stuff gets blown. Absolutely. Yeah. Wherever the wind takes it. Absolutely. But I, was, I, I spent a week, uh, it was quite a fascinating meeting. It was uh, a lot of indigenous people that had come from different uh, parts of the world to start thinking, well, not start thinking through, but sharing already their thinking in terms of how to deal with the current planetary crisis that we're in. Uh, and many communities, uh, the Kogis uh, in, in the forests in Colombia, have really interesting stories uh, in terms of age challenging in court. Um, these loggers that are mowing down the Amazon, mm. uh, which they've won successful cases around, uh, but also the regeneration of rivers and other, you know, kind of natural sites, but also protecting their kind of sacred sites is key for them. Mm. So, so they are putting forward and they are actually, you know, uh, uh, those solutions uh, are being implemented, obviously on a small scale. But if, with with yeah. government support? Uh, largely, they've been doing it on their own, mm. uh, but they are trying to, you know, they're such, let's say, peaceful people, even in whatever response, even with loggers, they're trying to, you know, respond not with arms, but like in trying to with convince dialogue. them. Yeah. But if you look at the Amazon, um, you know, just in July, uh, it was cut down the size greater than Greater London in one month of the Amazon. And that's being facilitated uh, by the president of Brazil mm. and obviously massive interest on oil, but, uh, you know, agriculture uh, yeah. as well. Mm. So Yeah, because that um, land is being cleared not only to get the wood to sell, but also to open it up for farming, right? Is that, is that the way it is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I mean, it's a, a lot of it is for farming. And, yeah. and it's mainly to feed uh, cattle Hmm. For the beef, I mean that's the biggest operation. Yeah. yeah, I think I mean that seems to be one of the the maybe um, sort of trendy, if I may use that term, uh, campaigns uh, now is to get people to to stop eating meat, and I, I I haven't I haven't stopped eating meat, but I certainly have. Um, cut down significantly my, my red meat intake. Mm. But, you know, once you go down that path of looking at food production mm. as a whole, mm. then you think fish, mm. that's not actually a wonderful alternative, is mm. it, given the state of our oceans, mm. Mm. the plunder that takes place there. And then you just look at sort of what it takes to grow a vegetable and transport it halfway around the world. So wh where, do you, where do you think the solution lies? Is, is, are we just going to be growing our stuff in the back garden? What you grow is what you eat, and that's it kind of thing. I mean, 
Yeah, no, I mean, that, that, that's a really good point. Uh, I think, you know, on, on the broader level, there's a lot of debate about how much we as individuals need to shift and change our behavior, which is certainly uh, important. But I think the bigger battle is with the mass scale production and pollution that's going mm. on and, and the extractive kind of industries, which we'll speak a bit more about later. Yeah. Because, you know, often, you know, once you focus or shift the focus on individual behavior and not focus on people that are actually, you know, decimating yeah. the planet. It's kind um, of absolving the corporate yeah. uh, multinationals, the, yeah. the most destructive org organizations of yeah. their responsibility. Absolutely. But, I mean, just to give you a local example here in Cape Town, <clears throat> um, you know, there's a community called Philippi, which is um, about 20 minutes away from the city. They supply Cape Town with vegetables. Um, about 70% of the vegetables come from Philippi and this farming community. Um, and the vegetables are grown there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. And okay. they've got like a boundless supply of water because there's this massive aquifer underneath the whole of the Cape Flats. Uh, but what's been happening is uh, the government in all its different levels have uh, been pushing to do uh, to cover it up, as in to get rid of the farming, to do housing developments for kind of middle-income housing, building prisons, and they've granted a prospecting license to, to do sand mining. Water. No sand mining on this aquifer in a city that almost ran out of water, and what? you know doesn't make sense at all. So that community has been fighting for the last ten years, and and as natural justice, we are now supporting them in that kind of legal battle, uh, you know, that, that, that's ongoing. But in this day and age, it doesn't make sense how you can allow one company to profit from sand when, you know, millions of people's uh, access to that water is, you know, is, is, is threatened. But also, you know, earlier we were talking about the inequalities, right? I mean, at the time when, when water was running out in Cape Town, you know, rich people had the um, uh, financial clout to build or, or dig boreholes in each of their backyards, tapping yes. from the same aquifer that poor people don't have, you know, access to, and yet the city uh, then grants, uh, you know, prospecting license. So some of these decisions don't make sense at all, and one can only assume that there's some, uh, you know, money exchange or you know some deals Vested that are being struck. interests are there. Absolutely. Yeah. How else do you explain it? Um, I read in a piece uh, that you wrote um, on the uh, on the Natural Justice site. It was in the context of the mining in Darba and the alternative mining Darba that uh, you, we can perhaps just touch on a little yeah. bit about what what that is. Where you said, you know, there can't be any businesses. This business as usual um, has got to end. And essentially, I mean, if you're talking about individuals versus corporations, and and I, I've spoken to other people it seems that what we're really talking about is a, a sort of what we what, what is required is a massive change in our um, as Leonie Jaber mm. said to me last week in our political economy mm. it's a change in the capitalist mm. structures mm. but how does that look to you then if you sort of imagine what a future mm. of humanity on this planet where we save ourselves as right. a species mm. how does that look because you know you know I, I sort of posited to her is it is it going back to the pre-industrial age in a mm. way are we going mm. to be 
traveling by horse and mm. sailing boat <laughs> or something like that, you know? Yeah. yeah. How, how do you, yeah. how do we save the world? <laughs> That's a small <laughs> question. <laughs> You've got 30 minutes starting now. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think just before, you know, looking at, at some of the solutions, I think part of the problem is we haven't grasped um, how enormous this challenge is, right? As human beings, I think our brain operates in a certain way, and a lot of the way it operates is based on what we've been fed, right? So everything is controlled in terms of who controls, uh, you know, all the mass media, uh, the whole consumerist culture, etc. You know, it's all... all uh, geared towards geared, yeah, this. To, yeah. And, and the reality is that's not going to shift anytime soon, but also the way we're doing business is not going to shift anytime soon. So even though the fossil fuel industry knows that there's a short uh, time for them left because the pressure is going to just keep increasing. So, you know, like a dying horse, they're trying to kick to make sure they maximize whatever they can do in terms of coal, oil, gas, and so on. Uh, and, and they'll continue to do that, even though, you know, based on the UN science reports by 2030, if we don't halve the emissions... But every month, those time frames are coming backwards. So I think that was pretty conservative. Um, mm. And that's shifting already. So, and, you know, when you look at some of the things that are going on, you know, the ex uh, accelerated melting of the Arctic, the yeah. fires in the Arctic that's releasing methane and carbon, um, you know... I, I, it, oh, the carbon density of the planet... Yeah, no, absolutely. It seems so, to have reached some kind of tipping point as well, according to some people. Yeah, so... so And the fact that we are not e easily, you know, able to grasp this mm -hmm. uh, means we're not going to change anytime soon, So, which presents us with a, with a bigger problem. In terms of, you know, thinking through uh, solutions, uh, I think the first starting point is is defense of what we have right and and those battles are being fought so indigenous communities for example are doing their best to protect what we have and we need to learn from those communities because they've many of them i'm you know not talking about those that have moved to cities and so on but those that live in forests and protected areas have lived in harmony right they use the resources that are there but they know how to use it in a sustainable way because that's how they've always done it. But these communities are under attack. You know, Global Witness just released a report recently showing the number of environmental and human rights defenders that have been killed because they're resisting these logging companies, mining companies. I mean, in Holobeni, for example, we know mm. in this period at least 10 activists have been killed. Uh, but the same is happening everywhere. Um, so one is, I think, how best do we defend what we have as a starting point, you know, even before we, we move forward. And part of that defense is also going to court, and I'll speak a bit more about some of the, the cases that, that, that yeah. we're dealing with. Uh, but two is, I think, we have to fundamentally change the way we live uh, because we know it's not sustainable, and if we keep going, you know, that's... Uh, we'll get to that point of extinction, which, you know, I think people are now starting to accept, even though, again, our mind can't process that. Mm. We're actually in this phase of extinction. 60% of the animal population or species since I was born have been wiped out, right? Mm. And that's now, you know, accelerating. Insects, 
of this insect yeah. species yeah. as well. I mean, it's at a very micro yeah. biological level that these things are happening, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So I think one of the key things is to actually listen to what indigenous people are saying, because I do think they have solutions. And, you know, finally they are coming forward because they realize the gravity of the situation. Many of these communities have been very isolated and insulated, but now realize based on the, the uh, you know, the enormity of the situation. So they are coming forward and, and, and putting uh, solutions forward. Um, you know, we're not able to go back in time and live in a way that people used to live with. Uh, uh, you know, so, some people still do that, but most people not. We live in cities, we live, you know, in, in, in a certain way. But I do think there's certain fundamental shifts we have to make quickly. I mean, take uh, carbon, for example. There's no reason at all we can't move forward very quickly with clean energy, right? There's no absolute, except the fossil fuel industry, still continuing to push that. Mm. And then we have a minister in, in South Africa who's pushing that agenda and, you know, using uh, things, words like clean coal, for example, which is absolutely ridiculous, um, and is dividing communities like in Holobeni, a community that's clearly said they don't want mining in the community. And I've seen, uh, you know, going to Lutzville, what the same company has done in that area. Um, I this is the, 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 the mining, the yeah. tor what's it Tormen. called? Tormen Mine yeah. on the West Coast, yeah. yeah. Same MRC, Australian Mining That's Company. It. Yeah. You know, when, when I went there <clears throat> the last time, the minister was coming to address the Mantashi, community. Yeah. Minister Mantashi. Yeah. Um, so when I got there, the community was locked out, you know, at the gate. So when I got there, you know, I was asking the activists, you know, what's happening? And they were like, the minister's meeting with the mining company inside, and then he's going to come out. This is in a community hall in that community. Like, why couldn't he meet with the mining company before somewhere else? <clears throat> anyway, the community was <clears throat> really upset, started shaking the gate. Eventually, he had to come out. And then when he came out, he said, uh, okay, he has to go to the mine, and then he'll come back and address them. Um, anyway, so I got into the... Uh, uh, the, the convoy. Convoy. <laughs> Are you tagged along with y the minister? Without them really knowing and managed to get into the space, uh, got a tour by Mark Caruso, and uh, it was horrific what I saw um, in terms of how, uh, you know, from the tailing dam, uh, the waste going straight into the ocean, the um, uh, beach being completely dug up, right. destroyed, five sea cliffs were, uh, you know, had collapsed, and then they get permission to destroy, like, um, another mass piece of, of uh, you know, a highly sensitive bi biological area. So the fact that, uh, you know, activists in Robeni are, you know, kind of standing up is so important for communities, not just in South Africa, but um, across the globe. So, but I think, you know, moving into quickly away from the uh, fossil-based uh, economy is going to be actually absolutely crucial. Mm. But also, you know, if you take opportunities in South Africa, right, besides kind of renewables and so on, uh, if you look at what's happening with um, marijuana in South Africa, uh, you know, based on all the developments, in terms of the economy, it could be a major boost for the economy, right? But what's starting to happen is the small growers, again, 
you know, are going to be pushed aside. Mm. You're going to get massive multinational companies already, you know, the Chinese and a whole range of other companies are already prospecting. Mm. And then that type of economy is not going to help, um, you know, get us out of poverty, reduce inequality and so on. So we, we, we need a new model. Mm. Yeah. I just want to go back a bit and talk a little bit about your youth, sort of uh, Mandini. Yeah. Um, was that, uh, you mentioned the, 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 the air and the factory, yeah. was that a site of struggle for your community when you were a youth and was that sort of quite an influential moment in sort of evolving your activism and the path you chose? Yeah, absolutely. It was a defining point because, mm. um, so when I was 13, I became fully involved uh, in organizing youth and beco becoming part of the youth movements and, you know, building from there. My Would this have been, what, early 80s then something? Yeah, like early that? 80s, yeah. So you're also then part of sort of the anti-apartheid struggle is intertwined with this uh, sort of anti-sappy yeah. or sort of trade union, I suppose, almost parallel... Yeah, no, no, it, I mean, certainly the activism started there, and my own understanding of why apartheid was wrong started in that small town, because I, mm. you know, could see it for myself. Uh, some people living in a really beautiful part of the same town, while the rest of us were dumped. Choking in the valley. Choking in the valley. Uh, my, my brother was like kind of, um, you know, I learned a lot from him, um, and he was pretty radical, you know, uh, in the struggle back then. Um, and, you know, so a lot of my early uh, kind of education mm. uh, was, 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 was based through on him. him. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, as we moved on, you know, Kwasul Natal uh, had the other element of uh, Zulan police. Uh, Oof, and yeah. so that was Jeez. horrific. You know, you, you, you knocked into them, did you? Yeah, so I was on, found to be on one of the hit lists of, you know, 20 students um, to be killed. Shit. And this was by an operative called Simpiwe Mvoyani, who eventually was shot. Uh, he was a KZP guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Son uh, of a gun. <laughs> but it's amazing, you know, how the story is told globally, right? That, you know, there was this thing called apartheid, and then Mandela was there, and then there was freedom, and then everyone is happy. But I think, you know, the true <laughs> essence of what really went happen, uh, what really happened hasn't, you know, come out fully in terms of the stories. Um, but, but, but those were certainly the... You mean just the terms. violence of apartheid yeah, the and the, 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 yeah. the, the methods and yeah. the actual, the yeah. brutality. Yeah. Yeah, Because I sure. think a, a lot of South Africans, you know, are carrying a lot of that with, without having dealt with it, right? I mean, mm. and, you know, as we are, we just like move and roll from one struggle to the next and... And then you carry the stuff, um, and then, yeah, at, at some point you realize all we're doing is, like, we carry the stuff, then we adapt to something else. Kicking the can down the road, in a way. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Yeah. Which and, and I think that's why we kind of, you know, remain a violent society. Mm. Um, but also inequality is a key, you know, there's that correlation, mm. like in South America. Or poverty. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. absolutely. Um, yeah, I was at a, a conference, it was a Mistra, um, conference a couple of weeks back in, in Johannesburg, so assessing 25 years of democracy. Mm. And I think one of those overriding, I, I was sort of popped in and out, so I can't say I've got a full view of the of the two days. Excuse me, I, mm. I, 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 I don't say I have a full view of the of the two days, but um, the fact that the government or the ANC has failed to 
grapple with poverty in mm. any meaningful way is, is really the biggest threat, it seems, mm. To, mm. Our, to our democracy. And um, I suppose it's kind of being played out mm. now mm. at, at mm. various levels. I mean, not only um, within the ANC, as we can see, which mm. seems to be tearing itself apart, mm. um, but this myriad of community protests sort of mm. just seemingly haphazard events mm. that are obviously, I think, rooted at some level mm. in just desperation and poverty. I don't know if you agree with that. No, absolutely. And, and I think if you look at why we're in the situation we're in, right? I mean, essentially, we're trying to use a model that we know is working for a few people, that majority of the people are slave labor and not benefiting. But we keep pushing the same model. I mean, you know, the, that's the president is looking for money from every place outside of the country. Mm. Uh, and essentially for that trickle-down approach that hopefully someday, you know, <laughs> uh, people would come out of poverty. But, you know, we, we, we know that's not going to work. Yeah, uh, yeah it's like uh, creating a black billionaire class is not yeah. the solution to our, our problems. No, absolutely. I mean, if people are not part of this this economy uh, and only other labor then you know nothing has changed really yeah. yeah we had a weird situation i was away for a weekend um and we met some i would say fairly conservative uh, afrikaners and i don't want to sort of pick them out i think there's plenty of white people who would have the same sort of attitudes but you know you sit at the table and they're yeah you know this place you know it was so it was so nice eh? It used to be so nice here in this country mm. and, and all that. So, you know, that sort of kind right. of sentiment. Mm. And I was like, you know, you don't want to... Okay, you've got to go on a game drive with these people for the next three <laughs> days. You don't want to completely blow your top. Right. So I was like, yeah, but you do realize that, you know, there's 100% of the economy was devoted to 5% of the mm. population. Um, and now it's a, an economy that's trying to desperately take care of 100% of the population. And you can sort of understand the challenges, let alone, I've sort of mentioned the br brutality and violence and, and the sort of mm. mental scarring of, of that on our, on our society as a whole. But you can check that the Oaks, are not, they haven't really sort of thought it through. Mm. And um, it, it just was, yeah, it, it, it just puts in perspective the struggle that, or the, 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 the amount of or the journey that we still, I suppose, need to mm. need to go mm. on as a as a nation at so many different levels. Yeah, I mean, I think we we're just so like deeply divided um, on mm. on so many fronts, and I think you know as as, as long as uh, you know a couple of things are still in play, you know, uh, the inequality. Um, and the poverty and so on, uh, unemployment. I mean, the fact that we officially twenty nine percent, but we know it, it's more than it's that. More than that sure. You know, the, in terms of how we relate to each other as people, etc. I mean, it, it's it's probably going to get worse. You know, until it gets better. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, but we need to deal with the fundamentals of how do you transform the space we're in, and what That's it requires is a different type of leadership. Yeah, I think the same tired. Leadership, not just in South Africa, but in Africa, mm. it, it you know it's it's it comes or it's based on maybe a paradigm that's twenty years ago, uh, and it and it misses where we are in the world today. Well, I suppose it's also based on inherited inherited uh, mm. colonial or apartheid type economies as yeah. well. So the guys have not they've just sort of been replugged into the global 
system, change a bit of the, the couple of faces at the top and, and keep on going. A again, in that same article, you sort of sounded almost incredulous that uh, the president is still put placing so much faith in the mining industry mm -hmm. in this country and seeing it as like a, still a kind of uh, opportunity for, for, for growth and development when, mm -hmm. as you say, it's 133 years old and mm -hmm. part of the, the, the way of dealing with our uh, climate crisis is by thinking differently about jobs and, mm -hmm. and what it is this, this country kind of wants to be. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, uh, if you look at, like, Marikana as an example, right? I mean, people like Niren and others have done amazing work in terms of being with the families and, and you know, uh, you know, looking at looking at some of the stories from, from there. It, it's just, like, shocking and heartbreaking that, you know, we keep, uh, uh, you know, positioning mining as, like, the new dawn, the new thing, when in fact, you know, many mine workers over, you know, the decades, you know, died very poor, very mm. broken, families that were broken and Torn so apart on. from their families, yeah. their homes. Yeah, and, and if, you know, you know, this day and age when we're still saying, you know, mining is going to be the backbone and encouraging, you know, these kind of in investments that, that, you know, are destructive, um, whereas communities are are telling the government what they want. So Holobeni is a good example of, uh, you know, they are happy with fishing, with uh, farming, and with, like, ecotourism, eco yes. right? Because they want to uh, keep their culture. They are pretty, you know, um, strong as a people. Uh, and imagine a, a mine that digs up, you know, all their sacred sites uh, in that area, a mine where they only thing they would do is provide the slave labor. They're not going to get highly technical jobs in this operation. Mm. A mine that after 10 years will leave the place, you know, decimated. Having built a school. Yeah, no, exactly. And so, you know, when, when you look at that, and it, it's really hard to understand how a government can be on the side of a mining company mm. that's from Australia versus its own people. And mm. also mm. a government that is full of people that come out of the trade union side of the mining industry. Yeah. Yeah. If you look at uh, the president and you look at the minister of mineral resources, I mean, they were both, if not, well, certainly NUM, yeah. to mm. staunch stalwarts. Mm. Yeah. So that does say something about just, I don't know, the way, what people lose their way. I, I think it's, you know, it's a whole state capture project, right? that goes beyond, you know, what's told and what's covered and mm. what's uh, being dug up. But it's just the whole mentality as well, because as long as you kind of smoothing, you know, with uh, these corporate bosses uh, in wherever it is, whether it's in Stellenbosch or wherever else, um, you know, as long as you're doing that and, and, you know, you're trying to facilitate something in the name of, you know, the economy, and you're not listening to anyone else in the country that may be putting forward solutions or communities that are saying, this is not what we want, you know, what we want is this. And if you're not listening to those voices, then you're not representing mm. the people. Mm. And so that's not democracy. Yeah. Um, I was, uh, I was uh, having a chat with a mate of mine and 
I think it was from even from the Sunday Independent. Of course, the Sunday Independent might have its own. We know some of right. the sort of machinations around that and what sort of agenda it has. But you know, a list of the the um, so-called donors to uh, Rama, President Ramaphosa's uh, election campaign, and um, I, I sort of said to him, "Well, it's kind of uh, it's a kind of state capture in a way. It's like a recapture or a." It's, it's another project of capture right. uh, that is sort of anti-transformation and anti-redistribution. Mm. Now, I'm not sure what the Jay-Z project was because I didn't see any transformation or redistribution mm. either. If they just maybe done a little bit of that, mm. they would have been on safer ground, whatever uh, looting had taken place. Right. If you'd shown yourself committed to whatever this radical economic transformation actually means in mm. the context of that, and I, I don't know what it means. Right. Um, but it just you know, struck me that, you know, anyone is willing to spend, what, 500 million rand so desperate to become president, mm. and with that kind of backing, yeah, it, it kind of left a funny taste in my mouth, I have mm. to say. But it's uh, just to <coughs> sort of make your point about yeah. That sort of thinking. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I think there's so much in terms of, you know, the money flows between people. And I think as long as that stuff remains secret and no one has access, this kind of operations will, you know, will continue. Mm. So, and the fact that all political parties have stuff to hide in terms of who's funding them. Sure. And as long as that's there, you know, we, we're going to have this problem. Mm. I mean, but just, you know, talking about the state capture stuff, so I was quite involved in the uh, coordination of this campaign to stop the nuclear deal you know, right. with others like Makoma, Liz, and Kumi, and so on. And it was just shocking the extent to which um, you know, the Russians were controlling what was happening in choosing which minister they wanted uh, and getting their way in that, you know, in making decisions around our energy policy. And the fact that you had this coal crisis that was created the Guptas, you know, getting to suddenly truck in and export coal. You know, it was just such a mess created. But, you know... A sort of coordinated mess. Very coordinated. No, it was all yeah. well, well orchestrated. But the extent to which we've sold our souls, right, is just... And, you know, it, it's heartbreaking when you, you know, people in South Africa that have given their lives to, to the struggle and, and mm. to the country... To kind of see where it's come to is 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 heartbreaking, but it just means we need to keep pushing. And mm. I mean, that's the amazing thing I think about activists in South Africa is they haven't stopped. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess it's in the blood. And yeah, yeah. And, I think um, I mean what has struck me over the year or so that I've been doing this podcast with certainly some of the people from your kind of background, that activist, and I spoke I spoke to Kumi uh, yeah. as well last year. Um, that sort of just pure commitment, uh, never uh, even uh, Leone as well, mm. just not willing to even consider mm. uh, giving up, you know, and, and sort of just seeing this as another extension of the struggle against apartheid mm. is the struggle for our, uh, against capitalism or the struggle mm. for to save our environment. It's all kind of, there is a link, right? No, absolutely. I mean, if, if, you, if you just take, you know, this, this, this planetary crisis, right, is, is our biggest struggle ever. 
as a collective, right? Because mm. this is our whether we survive or not. Mm. That, I mean, that's the bottom line, right? Bigger than the Second World War. Or it's bigger than every other struggle ever mm. fought, I would say, because, yeah. I mean, this is about the, the future end. of humanity. The, yeah. 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 Uh, but and, and then if you think through, like, people like, uh, Leone and Kevin Bloom and, and others who are, you know, a small group of people that are trying to put put this out there, right, in terms of the gravity of the situation. Uh, but the reality, again, is it's like, you know, the, the, the mind, you know, you take in what you want to take in. Mm. Um, it's almost like, you know, the band that played on the Titanic. It's kind yeah. of, you know, we're sleepwalking towards this cliff. Uh, and unless we wake up, I mean, the reality is we'll be at the cliff and it's too late because that momentum will kind of, you know, push push us over. Mm -hmm. So whatever, uh, you know, change we need now is going to be the biggest one, you know, we've ever had to come up with. Um, and yeah, so it can't be business as usual. We can't wait for the next five years to then start thinking, how do we change? Because I can guarantee one thing, it's, you know, over the next, let's say, two, three years, um, things will shift fundamentally it's already happening right in chennai 10 million people and the city runs out of water this is happening now not in the future mm. um, there was a science report pres presented to the indian government i think it was last year saying 21 cities will run out of water in the next two years now you've got these massive populations of people once the water runs out it's only on a temporary basis you can bring water in mm. But at some point, it has a knock-on effect, right? Yeah. And then people, people start, start going moving. looking for water. Yeah, they start moving to where, <laughs> you know, it sounds like a futuristic movie, mm. uh, but the reality is, you know, it's here. Yeah. I'm just struck now. I wonder if that whole move in Kashmir is about water. I'm, yeah, but we'll see. I yeah, mean, I mean, just, I was just mm, sort of speculating, given the mountains are right there. Yeah, I mean, with Modi, it's like there's a whole a lot of things going on that's mm. so i think bad for for uh, for communities in india pakistan but for the world as well because mm. i see you actually did used to, you used to have an office in india but it, there were some circumstances i don't know if you we need to get into that um under which they no longer operate yeah i mean largely it was uh because of funding Oh, funding see, okay. that, that had run out that you know that office is closed but the need is i mean is, is so massive mm. i mean like in india i mean you know the government's trying to force people out of the forest right in the name of protecting the forest uh but mm. you know what happens right once you push once people, people out, are gone the forest then is the gone. forest is gone i mean mm. i'll give you a good example in kenya uh, and some of the communities we're working in in, in Kenya. So the Ogiek people, uh, they were being kicked out of their forest, right, uh, by the Kenyan government. Again, in the name of protection. They went to the highest court in Kenya. They lost their case. And then they went to the Africa Court of, of Human and People's Rights. And they won the case there, which means now the Kenya government has to follow the, the decision which was a massive victory for them, which means they can now stay in the forest, protect their uh, forests, their livelihoods, their history, their culture, their sacred sites, um, and so on. Um, so, you know, there, there are some, you know, victories, uh, but those are temporary because the force keeps coming back, you know, in mm -hmm. terms of wherever there's uh, something to extract, 
um, you know, there's different ways devised um, yeah, yeah. to do that. Can I just, I just want to talk a little bit about natural justice yep. and, and the organization. I was interested to see, I didn't know that it was actually, it is a South African uh, organization from the start, started I think yep. in 2007. Why was the decision taken to focus particularly on indigenous communities um, when, when the organization was, 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 was formed? And maybe you could just sort of give us an understanding of what we mean by indigenous communities right. and then expand a little bit on, on the work of the organization as a whole. Sure. Um, yeah, so, so the organization was started by two lawyers and it was started here in Cape Town at a coffee shop. <laughs> Very <laughs> and, Cape Town, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and this was the uh, first, first office, uh, this one. Oh, right. Yeah. It's the original. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the two, two people that had started, were started was um, uh, Sanjay Bhakavati, who's uh, from India and, and now uh, running uh, the Christiansen Fund in, in the U.S., and the other person is Harry Jonas, who is now in Malaysia. Um, so, so they had started the organization. Um, and at, at the outset, you know, a lot of it was looking at um, kind of bioculture uh, and looking at uh, communities' uh, rights was, you know, the kind of foundational building blocks. And natural justice uh, pioneered something called the biocultural community protocols. And basically what this does is kind of brings a community together uh, to think through, you know, in terms of their values, in terms of the vision, in terms of what do they want as a community. Mm -hmm. But underneath that, looking at what their rights are, you know, so from a legal perspective. And the whole idea is, you know, so if you get companies coming into the community or government wanting to do something there or whatever, then the community has a good understanding of what their rights are, mm. knows what free prior informed consent is about, and then is able to engage in a much stronger, uh, on a much stronger footing with yeah. whoever wants to do anything in mm. that, that. And it could be, as you say, mining, it could be infrastructure. I mean, the government yeah. wants to build a, f a highway yeah. through a particular area. Yeah. So it's mm. more, as I understand it then, about giving the, the community a, a template on which to decide what who they are yeah. so to sort of define themselves mm -hmm. uh, define what they want to protect why they want to protect yeah. it and then give them a legal channel or some legal tools with which yeah. to fight that battle exactly exactly oh, and, okay. and i'll give you two maybe quick examples sure. of, of what it looks like in practice so I'll, I'll use a kenya example and a south africa example so in kenya we've been working with indigenous and local communities in uh, well, in many parts of the country, but I'll use the Lamu example. So yes, Lamu is a, a World Heritage Site. It's mm. the oldest Swahili settlement. Um, and basically, we've been working with them for the last decade. Initially, it was, you know, essentially um, uh, going to each of the different communities there, having discussions and so on. But over a period of developing a biocultural community protocol, what it did was, so, you know, the fisher folk, the small farmers, the women, the youth, uh, different parts of the communities got together to organize themselves to see, you know, what's going on in the area, what are the threats, uh, how do we consolidate, how do we work together. And out of that process came some, an organization now called Save Lamu, uh, which is, uh, you know, quite a strong, powerful uh, organization Lobbying. of activists. Yeah. Uh, and then, 
beyond that came something called a decolonized campaign to stop a coal plant in Lamu. And I'll speak a bit about the court process around that. Um, so that all came out of this biocultural community protocol mm. process over, right, yes. over a period of time. And they recently launched their, 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 their protocol. But, you know, with that, there were a couple of things that happened. Uh, there was a bulldozer going through the farmer's land. And the farmer's like, whose bulldozer is this? So they stopped it in its tracks. And then they asked, like, what are you doing on our land? And then as we, you know, went to court around the matter, we realized in the court papers that 27,000 hectares of their land was given away given. <laughs> without their permission. Um, so that's on the one hand. On the other hand, there's this massive port development, uh, a 32-berth port uh, right uh, at, at, at Lamu. So, you know, they're dredging. Uh, One-third of the coral is gone. The mangroves are gone. Uh, I think two people from the community have been employed in this I've, project. I've been to Lamu. So they yeah. want to build a, har a harbour right there on that waterfront where the hotel is and all of that, where the old town is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, well, across from there. Okay, yeah, but yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. on, yeah, that, but on the that, island across where yeah, the mangrove yeah. forest is. Yeah, yeah. So, and already, you know, two berths have been built. Um, so there's, you know, the port development, there's oil and gas that's been discovered. There's oil pipelines coming from Lake Takana. There's uh, highways, there's, uh, and then the coal plant. So on the coal plant, we, right. you know, we went to court and a month ago, so the community has won this amazing victory to stop this uh, coal plant that's funded from China, which was a major victory, a small community, you know, going to court and, and you know, beating uh, this giant. Um, and, and a it, Chinese giant at that. Yeah, yeah, and it caused ripple effects that went way, you know, back to China, where there were discussions and meetings about, okay, what do we do now? Because you know, once you have one victory, and if a few more pops up, then you know the Chinese uh, Belt and Road Initiative starts to take a bit of a wobble, even though mm. it's so big in so many countries. Uh, but it shows what a community can do in terms of being organized, uh, in terms of, uh, and then in some cases having to go to court. So the other way we work with this community is we have a staff member who's based in that community, who's a paralegal. We call them community environmental legal officers. So on a daily basis, they're working with the community around their rights, around complaints to local government, around petitions, you know, doing all of that work. So a lot of it is rooted in, you know, in the communities. And then last year we won a, another victory for the fisher folk. Because their livelihoods are, you know, so threatened. Highly under threat. Yeah, yeah, because once a port, well, in the development of the port, these massive ships coming in, as I said, uh, one-third of the coral in that area is gone, so it's decimating that uh, ecosystem. Um, so we went to court and, 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 and won uh, uh, that case, and, and which meant they'll now get compensation and so on. Hmm. But compensation, you know, lasts for a certain damages, time, yeah, and then... Yeah, yeah. But it also, it, it has an impact on how people live, right? Because they've lived in a certain way for a long time based on fishing, farming, and so on. And now, you know, you're going to throw in casinos, um, you know, hotel complexes, and so on. And not that the communities there don't want development. They do want development. But done in a particular way, not just this extraction of every resource they have, and then, then, you know, hardly getting anything. Anyway, but that's one example. The, the other one is, um, and if you look at the poster here, 
uh, it's about you know working with the San and Koi communities. Um, and in this particular case, it, it was a biocultural uh, protocol around rooibos, right? And you know, so what the protocol does, which will be launched soon, is it captures you know the history, the traditional um, knowledge, the role these communities played, and what rooibos has meant in their lives. Mm. Um, but also, you know, from an economic perspective, what does it mean? So for um, the past seven years, um, you know, together with others, uh, we've been working with these communities uh, and have been uh, looking at traditional knowledge. And finally, you know, it's now acknowledged that uh, the Khoi and San people have or hold the traditional knowledge. And that knowledge Some kind of IP, I suppose, in a way. Uh, yeah, I mean, the IP is a bit further down the road. Oh, okay. but, but just saying, you know, the Khoi and San people have been using rooibos in specific ways, not just as a tea, but to cleanse different organs for skin disease, for dandruff, etc., etc. Hmm. And a researcher that it came and spent time with them wrote all of this down, did a paper, Nestle got a hold of the paper, uh, and then started this kind of industry, and then it became a multi-billion dollar industry with no acknowledgement at all, uh, you know, that the traditional knowledge initially or it lays with with these communities and mm. so 10 years ago natural justice you know was involved in this international process obviously a un process with with many others but natural justice worked closely with african governments to get certain protections in, in the global framework and one of the things was the nagoya protocol which deals with like access and benefit sharing and traditional knowledge so mm. now we have a gr global framework so with Roibos in South Africa, we're now using that global framework, working with Department of Environmental uh, Affairs, but also the Roibos industry, you know, together with these communities, uh, to look at how, uh, you know, these communities can now benefit, mm. uh, so that all of the profits are not just going to a few to, people. To Switzerland. That have, yeah. 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 Um, I just want to get back to a couple of the other... Um, Areas that that mm. that you are that you are working in, um, we, I suppose we've discussed uh, climate change. I'm also interested in the, the the conservation side of things and the relationship, um, and also just uh, sorry before we go further, um, the indigenous just the definition of indigenous uh, people because it seems that it's quite a it's quite broad mm. it's quite a broad sort of group of people you're talking about. So I suppose. Rural populations would form part of that definition as well, or yeah, I mean, because you also talk about moving populations. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so so there's no like absolute clarity, and it was decided that there there can't be a closed box definition of who are indigenous people. However, the UN through its process has got like or laid out characteristics uh, of what. Okay. And so, to give you an example. So in South Africa, you'd have, uh, like the Khoi and San people are considered indigenous mm. based on the fact that they've been in the space in a continuous period from the time that's ever been known or even recorded based on cave paintings, et cetera, yes. et cetera. Um, and in fact, you know, I mean, there's many different theories about who are the first people on the planet. Uh, but certainly... Uh, they would be up there. They would be up there, yeah. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, that would be one, one example. Uh, the Aboriginal people in, in Australia, 
who have been you know in that space for as long as you know uh, pe people know so there's some very defined populations similarly to those in the amazon uh, etc but the, you know the there's in, some the inuit or the laps or yeah, yeah, yeah yeah sami people yeah, yeah. no exactly um, so, so there's some, I guess, communities that are more clearly defined, but there's others because people have shifted, people have moved, people have, um, you know, um, come together across races, etc., mm. etc. Um, you know, so you may look at some have evolved, thing. I suppose. Ha absolutely. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, but there's certain, I guess, more clear-cut, let's say, indigenous, uh, right? Yeah, yeah populations. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, just uh, if we can just touch a little bit on this conservation, because yeah. yeah. so, it's 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 kind of, again, it's a different kind of progress or yeah. different kind of, when I say pro maybe not progress is the right, a different kind of incursion right. um, that doesn't seem to be perhaps as insidious as an extractive mm. industry or a highway, but yeah. somebody taking somebody's land to yeah. turn it into a game reserve yeah. Yeah. might sound all cool and right. you know we're protecting our yeah. natural resources in a yeah. way. Um, as you say, you not know, protect the forest yeah. uh, and take out the people. Yeah. Um, this is not to destroy the forest, but it is to sort of displace people. Yeah. No, and, and, and there's, I mean, again, many examples. I'll, I'll just use one in Botswana. So the Greater Kalahari National Park. Mm. Um, so San people have been living there for, for a long time. They were kicked out uh, in the name of, you know, protecting the, the, the park. Um, whereas you know they've they've been lived they've lived, lived there they've sustained park, yeah. they've know how to live with lions. nature no, no no not at all not at all but they were kicked out in order to protect it but later found out that there was obviously um, uh, minerals underneath <laughs> mm. and, and you know then it was you know granting companies access etc to do prospecting and so on anyway there was a court case uh, over a decade ago and they won the case. Uh, and then, you know, they, they now have a right to live back there. However, there's many restrictions on where they move, what they do, who mm. can visit them, and so on. Uh, and some of the communities stuck outside of the park. So it's just like, you know, I mean, it's... Um, it's not a, not a great solution. No, no mm. not at all. Mm. But And a lot of their rights are still being, um, you know, vi violated. Um, similarly, you know, the Enderoys community in, um, in Kenya... They were moved from uh, Lake Bogoria because, uh, you know, it was for the protection of the lake. And then, you know, it was discovered that companies were coming in because there's certain enzymes from the lake that are very valuable and they used to, like, dye clothes. Uh, and, you know, oh. so now there's a thriving operation. But, you know, the people ben, that were taking care of the place, you know, were kicked... from it. Yeah, they don't... Or, and, and, the, and the fact that they, they get kicked out. Mm. So... And part of the problem in the past is, you know, the whole uh, issue around conservation was very separate from people's rights, right? Mm. So, you know, you had some organizations that just saying, no, we need to protect this at all costs, even if it means kicking people out to protect it. But that's not a solution. It's people that have lived in these places for centuries and have taken care, you know, of the forest, are in harmony with nature, uh, and you throw throw them out, uh, you know that that imbalance. Because the reality is, we're part of nature. We we think we've extracted ourselves completely, and you know we don't need nature. 
But if, if you think about, you know, when I think about uh, breathing, right, uh, it's kind of like, you know, you'll do whatever you can to protect your lungs, right, so that you can breathe properly. Well, you know, some smokers may not. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but if you think of the world, and let's say if you think of the Amazon or the DRC as the lungs as of the lung. planet, right? Mm. And here we go just, you know, cutting it down, irrespective of who lives there, etc. Uh, it just doesn't make sense because ultimately, you know, that's going to lead to the, our ultimate demise. Mm. Um, so, you know, in terms of conservation and customer use, our approach is about how do we ensure that both people and the environment around them is protected because they, they kind of work in harmony with each other. And, and that's the kind of stuff we, we work on. Um, mm. We don't take like a environment view and a people view for us it's interrelated and so just touching on on the climate stuff but bringing it back in yeah you know we we're looking at cases currently across the globe um where some of this is happening so in colombia um, they went to court and argued on the basis of um this is, the, this is that group you mentioned earlier. Yeah, but, yeah. but others in Colombia as well. They, uh -huh. they went to court, um, and basically because the forest, the Amazon side, uh, has been like decimated. So they went to court to stop that. And the, what they argued is, A, that they live in the forest, they are protecting the forest. Um, so they're arguing both in terms of the rights of nature, right? As in that nature has its own right. At the same time, their rights, um, you know, to water, food, uh, a healthy environment, mm. are all intertwined. You can't separate them because it's that whole ecosystem. But once you kick them out, and then you know you destroy the the the, the, the planet. But there's many other cases in uh, the Ganges in India uh, has been given rights now, based on mining that was taking place, based on uh, you know the pollution, mm. etc. Uh, in New Zealand, you know, there's a river, Lake Erie in the U.S. Um, there's these precedents that are being set now. Uh, Through battles fought by indi indigenous, indigenous communities. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things as natural justice we're doing is, is looking at um, also going to court to set some kind of precedent in South Africa, but would probably be the first in Africa as well, um, around, um, yeah, the, the, the interlinkages of the rights of nature, that nature has rights, but in relation to, to people's rights. Mm. Uh, you know, the Philippi example is a good one, where mm. they're looking at the rights of the aquifer, but at the same time, people's rights in relation to the, the, to aquifer. the aquifer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and pulling that together mm. because... People as protectors of the aquifer. No, exactly. That exactly. has a, a broader benefit for a community well beyond yeah. Philippi. Because the reality is, like in that case and many others, I mean, we can't trust government to be those protectors, unfortunately. Eesh. That's their role and responsibility. But mm. if they, you know, are acting in the interests of companies, then you can't depend on companies or, you know, governments to do this kind of protection. Mm. You know, I can't say that, you know, as a blanket scenario. But your general in, experience yeah, has been. Has been that, yeah, I mean, you know, the government model is not about, yeah. Protecting its people. Yeah. It is quite ironic, I suppose, that if we do manage to save our asses, <laughs> that it will be those communities that have probably caused the least harm and been most impacted by this 
sort of industrial age, mm. that may well save us all. Uh, uh, yeah, to be honest, I think that's kind of where our hope is. Because, yeah, I mean, let's say there's two... Uh, this is, as we said, the biggest battle of our lifetimes, right? So part of it, I think, is going to be about indigenous communities playing a massive role in, 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 in the solutions. But at the same time, I think it's about how best we organize ourselves to fight this battle together. More and more, you know, in terms of the spaces I'm going to, uh, people are coming together. Um, so next week in, in, in Kenya... Again, there's you know people coming together uh, that are putting forward solutions that are thinking through how do we do this given that the, you know the, the the time's running out. So I, I think it's that kind of convergence that's happening, mm. and there are people that's starting to wake up. You know, it's just happening slowly, uh, but but I do think that will be accelerated because as the as we see more of the damage. So I mean, if you look at what what happened in 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 Mozambique as an example. With ninety ninety percent of a city being you know wiped out, oh, Barra. yeah, Barra. it's like it's so close to us, but you know it's so far as well Just because we've got it's no like, sense of no, that. it's the next Through day. The media, it's like okay, yeah. what's next in the news kind of thing, and mm. and we kind of move on. Um, so we have to do more of the solidarity thing, mm. you know, and that's going to be absolutely crucial. Do 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 you find now that these struggles are sort of crossing? class boundaries or sort of community boundaries if I can if I can put it that way is there a sort of broader now understanding that even people perhaps not immediately impacted are realizing that it is in our interest to protect this community that we kind of perhaps in the past saw as less than us or less worthy of mm. us or mm. more expendable than us mm. yeah I mean you know just alluding to your earlier point and, and linking it back to this the, the challenge is, you know, with, with the kind of levels of inequality there is in the world, right? And, and it's the polluters, uh, you know, and the unfairness of the situation. As you said, the people that, you know, are least polluting the planet are facing the most impacts. And the challenge is it's money provides some buffer because you can kind of buy your way out for a certain period of time, right? You can move to a different place. You know, some people would probably want to go to Mars or whatever you have, you know, mm. mon mon money to do to escape. Move to New Zealand, apparently, according <laughs> yeah. to people in Silicon Valley. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're going to buy your way out for a while. However, I think, you know, this climate catastrophe is so big. No, can, one, no one can dodge You it. can only escape for a short while. Um, and, and, you know, in, in terms of uh, people living... Um, on islands, um, you know, and that's rich and poor people. Well, they've just had the APAC um, summit where, where yeah. Australia and the, uh, those specific islands really yeah. boxed yeah. Quite, yeah. quite heavily. I think yeah. there was quite a lot of pushback and, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, like Al Gore's kind of sequel to the initial documentary he did, uh, it was really one of the scenes that kind of sticks in my head is him being in the Arctic and looking at how rapidly the glaciers are, are, are melting at extraordinary uh, speed. And then the next scene, he's, he's going to a meeting in Miami, and then he can't get to his meeting on time because the streets are flooded with seawater, right? Mm -hmm. And then, so he then speaks to the mayor, and so asks the mayor, so, you know, what, what, how, how do we sort this? So what they're doing is raising the level of the road, right, for now. 
And then Algo is like, okay, then once it, <laughs> you know, comes up, but that they don't have the solution. For now, they're pumping water 24 hours a day back into the ocean. They Seriously? Already, yeah, they're already doing that. And then just keep raising the roads. But, you know, that's not going to be a solution. Yeah. Um, Puven, mm -hmm. uh, that's been fascinating chatting to you. Um, let's leave it there. And I look forward to talking to you again sometime soon. Yeah, no, thank you so much. I think it's, it's you know, with all the depression and depressing stuff, I think it's the most amazing time to be alive. <laughs> and it's going to be quite a ride going, going forward. So, yeah, look, looking forward to, yeah. Cool. And, doing and, and good luck with all your, your projects. I think this community protocols thing I found uh, particularly fascinating, I must say. So thanks again yeah. and uh, all the best to your team. Thank you. Thanks so much. I find it uh, incredible and inspirational how these activists I speak to, they just keep going. I mean, you know, the, the positivity at the end there, I mean, uh, something to behold, a, a great time to be alive indeed. And um, I hope you get some inspiration from this and some of the other podcasts, recent podcasts I've had. I've put links to the Natural Justice website as well as the Greenpeace report that we referred to uh, on the audio, on the Voices from Africa audio boom page. So please, please do that. Check them out. Find out more. Voices from SA is hosted on Audio Boom. You may subscribe to Voices from SA via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio Public, Deezer, or indeed wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your colleagues, tell your friends, tell the world. Until next time, I'm Nicholas Claude. Cheers.